thanks for checking out this message from Springmount Church. For more information about us and what we do, visit our website, springmount.church. Why not check out all the different groups that run throughout each week in Barrow and on Walney? And join us every Sunday from 11am at Salt House Pavilion in Barrow Infernos. If you would like us as a church to pray for you, please email prayer at springmount.church or sign up on our website for monthly news straight to your inbox. Right, I'm going to test you now on some romantic films. How well do you know them? Yeah, I'm not confident. (laughs) So if I say you had me at hello... Yeah, my husband's just got to shout out the right answer, I think, to all of these. (laughs) Nobody puts baby in a corner. Oh, yay. You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, I love, I love you. This is a bit... Oh, well done. So we know our cultured people in church now. Uh, Somewhere out there is a lady who I think will never be a nun. I'll feed us in, darling. Sound of music. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Notting Hill, yep. And the last one. There I was standing there in the church and for the first time in my whole life I realized I totally and utterly loved one person. And it wasn't the person standing next to me in the veil, it's the person standing opposite me now in the rain. If I said the next line was, Is it raining? I hadn't noticed. Four weddings and a funeral. It is, yeah. So these quotes are all from films where very near the beginning, two people encounter one another. And we know in that very moment that this film is about them finding their way to one another. And in the industry, that moment is known as a meet-cute. And anyone who's watched The Holiday, another lovely romantic film, will know that phrase. Um, And we've come to recognize it in these type of films, haven't we? And so we invest ourselves totally in that promise. And it never runs smooth. We go on an agonizing journey with them. And the anxiety and the expectation builds and builds and builds. And just at the point it looks like it'll never happen, there's a moment. And in that moment, everything that was promised to us in that meet-cute all that we hope for in that story is fulfilled. Now, the film may continue a little longer to tie up other threads or just to let us bask in the happiness or just weep like a baby, if you like me. But it's in that climax where our anxiety dissipates and we breathe out, knowing they're united in their love. Now, this film tool uh, where... It looks like it's going one way and then it turns, you know, does a 180 degree turn the other way is called a plot pivot. And the quotes that I've said before were all plot pivots, so the turning points uh, from the films that they were in. So this week we are looking at Isaiah chapter 40. And if you think of it in film terms, then this is the plot pivot. But what's the plot? So Johnny last week spoke on chapter 6, so then we've skipped over 33 chapters, um, so we should probably look a little at the context to consider the plot. 
We've had a little flavour in the prior weeks, but the first 39 chapters of Isaiah contain a lot of warning, a lot of judgment, talk of fighting battles, of sin, of justice, some historical context, laws, smatterings of poetry and wisdom, a lot of prophecy, plus little whispers of Jesus throughout. Does that remind anyone of anything? 39 pieces of writing of law, history, poetry, wisdom and prophecy with whispers of Jesus throughout. We got our picture? Yep. Yep, it's the Old Testament. So now, we're going to start at the very beginning, as one of those films that we quoted assures us that it is a very good place to start, and especially for those new to faith. So the Bible is not one book. It's two collections of books, the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament is a collection of 39 books and the New of 27 books. Each book is written down by a godly person, but divinely inspired. So we believe it is the written word of God. And one of the New Testament books, 2 Timothy 3.16, puts it that all scripture is God-breathed. But it isn't God's autobiography. God is far bigger than we can fit within these pages. And so the Bible doesn't have all the answers to all the questions that you will ever have. The Bible is the story of God's relationship with mankind, with us, and it does have all the answers to all the questions that you'll ever need. So as I said, the Old Testament oh, it's gone, has 39 books of law, history, poetry, wisdom, and prophecy. And these tell the story starting at creation. So there they are along the top there. So if we could have the next slide now, please. Oh gosh, it's been a while since we heard that, isn't it? <laughs> um, so they start at creation um, through God forming Adam, which you could say is the meat cute in this story. Uh, then he formed Eve. And you probably all know that Adam and Eve, tempted by Satan, represented in the story by a serpent, ate of a forbidden fruit which represented them choosing to do what they wanted to do instead of what God said was best, and that is what we call sin. The consequence of this was that they became separated from God, and those who come after are born into this separation. And we read in Genesis 3.15, so that's the first book. Oh, it's gone, sorry. Yeah, keep that one up, it's fine. Uh, that God said to Satan at the time, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And this sets the narrative for the rest of this book because it's all about how that separation would be restored, how we would be redeemed, how the spiritual battle that had begun would end in the woman's offspring striking Satan's head or defeating him through a person. Now, I don't know why, but God chose a man named Abraham and his descendants to outwork that story and bring restoration through. He said to him, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. This was their covenant, and God reaffirmed that promise to Abraham's son Isaac, to his son Jacob, and to his son Judah. 
The family had an adventure-filled journey with God, which went into Egypt through Joseph, the 11th of Jacob's sons. And over the years, they became an enslaved people there, but made their escape through Moses parting the sea. They then wandered the desert for many years and began to take their eyes off God. So God presented them with the Ten Commandments. So we're still in the the first, I keep thinking it's there, first couple of books of that Old Testament. These Ten Commandments were given to create a moral and obedient society. They were about marking out the descendants of Abraham as special, holy, distinguishing them from the amoral and lawless nations that surrounded them. Because after all, from them, God was going to bring out his purposes they needed to represent. The commandments were not about what God needed. They're about what Israel needed, and by extension, us. Because they and we need focal points, frameworks, and boundaries to coexist happily, don't we? They weren't about keeping them all to earn God's love. So if you have ever felt that he won't love you because you fall short in an area, if you've ever felt condemned by these commandments, if someone else has used them to make you feel shame or guilt, or if you've ever felt them to be a heavy burden on you, stop. Please be free of that today. Nobody is good enough to live up to these rules. And if his love depended on us sticking to something he knows we couldn't, that would make God cruel. And he absolutely is not. The rules weren't the tick list to achieve restoration. They weren't the covenant. The restoration and redemption, as we've said, was always going to come through a person. Anyway, after wandering the desert, the descendants, led by Joshua, entered the land of God, entered the land God had promised to give them, and they settled as the nation of Israel. The rest of the Old Testament books tell the continuing story of Israel, and they are full of accounts of seemingly endless wars with different nations, of godly people that you'll have heard of, such as Gideon, Daniel, David, and Ruth, faithfully and courageously following God's instructions of very ungodly people being thwarted and overthrown by God, of leaders rising and falling, of Israel's endless ebbing and flowing between obedience to God and of them turning away from God, leading to God's discipline, and of prophets raised up to call Israel to return to God and to keep affirming the promise God gave of redemption coming through one person. And so we find ourselves in the book of Isaiah. We are here at around 740 BC, so just before that little white dot on the bottom there, uh, in a period just before the nation of Israel, which you can see has now split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. It's just before they are taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God's judgment is about to fall on them because of their unfaithfulness and sin. And Isaiah, in those first 39 chapters, is warning the nation of the threat. 
is encouraging them to stop sinning, calling them back to God, telling them the future like it is in all its sad state. God's judgment in this context isn't about ultimate judgment, where we're cut off from his love. It's about discipline, which God does still administer for our protection and growth. Hebrews 12:11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God does give ample warning and chances to repent before he dishes it out, and it can be worked for our good. And here in Isaiah, God does speak of the relief to come after they have suffered a while. And just as the Old Testament is punctuated with hints of a coming saviour, then so is Isaiah. Johnny recently reminded us of um, chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And chapter 35, verse 4 says, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Unshakable promise, certain hope. So that's our context. 39 chapters of Isaiah reflecting the 39 chapters of the Old Testament. And if we look where the Old Testament ends, we find our plot pivot where the New Testament starts. And from there, it's all about Jesus. His death and resurrection fulfill that promise of restoration, that old covenant that God had with Abraham. The story is completed in him, one person and yet also fully God. Our hope is assured, a new covenant with all people through Jesus begins. And the rest of the New Testament is all about us living that out, the other side of the cross, until our personal story here ends or until Jesus comes a second time to make all things new. And if we look at the end of those 39 chapters of Isaiah, then chapter 40 is that plot pivot for 27 chapters, mirroring the 27 books of the New Testament of hope and restoration and newness and glory for the nation of Israel brought about by a servant. Excuse me. So the Jews are now in exile. And we know from the book of Daniel, um, don't we, that this is not a comfortable place to be. So we know Daniel ended up in a lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in a fiery furnace. But God speaks through Isaiah that his people are to be comforted despite the circumstances that they are in. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look into um, Isaiah 40 now. So verses 1 and 2. Say, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So in this context, um, Jerusalem, as the word Zion is later, is used sort of poetically for the whole nation of Israel. They're interchangeable. And God is telling um, Isaiah to speak comfort to Israel. Yes, you've been disciplined, he says, 
but it's coming to an end, so take heart, it's nearly over. Now that verse, the last one, sounds like God has punished them twice as much as they deserve, and you'll have to take my word for this because it'll take me too long to explain, but in this context, the saying double means exactly the right amount. God hasn't punished them twice, he's punished them justly. So what's next? Verses three to five. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, there's some debate about whether this was written while the Israelites were actually in exile or if it was written prophetically before. But either way, it was written at least 600 years before Jesus' ministry started. So if we flip forward now to the start of the New Testament, we'll find these words written all those years later. They're written in relation to John who we would come to call the Baptist, and he was telling the people that a king is on his way. So remove all obstacles, barriers, hindrances to him being seen in all his glory. It wasn't literally about leveling the ground, it's a work of the heart. John the Baptist encouraged people to repent of their sins and be baptised. He said, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, get ready. He's on his way. These verses are quoted in all four Gospels. Now, the Gospels, if you don't know, they're um, the books that recount Jesus' life. And they all vary in the, offense, in the events that they choose to document. So when all four document the same thing, you know it's really significant. Now, all those years before, Isaiah prophesied that the plot pivot would be heralded by this man, that he would precede the Saviour. So in writing these verses in relation to John, the gospel writers were saying, look, this is him who God told us about in Isaiah. So if he's that guy, the one that he speaks of must be the one the one that comes to save, the one God mentioned right at the start, the one God reminded us of again and again and again throughout our entire history. This is him. And why were they in need and us of him? Um, verses six to eight now. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. We are a fickle bunch, aren't we? We're feeble, we're frail, we blow about depending on our circumstances, changing our faith in God with our changing emotions, and God could cut us down with a breath. So if the prayer verses were telling Israel to prepare their hearts, 
These verses were explaining why and pointing out their need for God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. We can have a transient beauty, but the personal glory we achieve from our own accomplishments is fleeting and forgotten in time. But anything we achieve, because God has spoken over it, lasts and has meaning. Verses 9 to 10. Climb a high mountain, Zion. You're the preacher of good news. Raise your voice. Make it good and loud, Jerusalem. You're the preacher of good news. Speak loud and clear. Don't be timid. Tell the cities of Judah, look, your God, look at him. God, the master, comes in power, ready to go into action. Hold on. He's coming. God's coming. Redemption is on its way. The one promised to you, in whom all your hope is found, is coming. And what's he going to do? He's going to pay back his enemies and reward those who have loved him. What enemies? Well, earlier I mentioned that right at the start, a spiritual battle began with Satan. And Satan has an overinflated ego, and he thought he could win man's affections from God. I don't think Satan would understand it as affection, though. It's more admiration, idolatry that he wants. And he tries to win by accusing us, doesn't he? You're no good. You can't do that. You did do that. You're guilty. You should be ashamed. And it makes us feel condemned and unworthy. So our focus, instead of God, becomes our negative feelings about ourselves. And even if we do give God some thought, we can't look him in the eye. So never see him as he really is. Never see his unconditional love for us. And Satan will take that. If he can't have your admiration, then he will settle for God not having your full affection. And he's able to manipulate us in that way because a lot of the time we are guilty, aren't we? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 tells us. But that doesn't mean we don't receive God's love. What parent stops loving a child because they were selfish in a moment or because they lost the temper and said a bad word or even because they said something cruel to them? Yes, it hurts. They may need to be disciplined and the relationship will need to go through some healing. But love won't end. But if Satan can convince you of that with God, then he considers it a win. But he's so prideful that he tried to do the same with Jesus. And the problem there was that Jesus had nothing he could be accused of. He never went anywhere but God's way because he is God. So when Satan tried, he just looked foolish. Now Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So why did the cross triumph? Well, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. A spiritual separation from God, because God is just and holy. He gave us the choice not to sin, he gave fair warning of the consequences, but we chose to sin anyway, and there needed to be a price. 
Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, hang on, Adam sinned. Why am I still living under that separation? Why do you keep saying we? Well, yes, it happened through Adam. But which one of us honestly can say we definitely would not have done the exact same thing if we stood in his place? Anyway, the, other way, the only way to overcome this was for one without sin, one who couldn't be accused to take the punishment on everyone else's behalf, to sacrifice themselves. And that might sound really harsh until you realize that probably even before Adam and Eve made the wrong choice, God had it covered. He was always going to provide the solution to the problem himself, to be the solution himself. It was always a done deal, just a matter of timing. And so in Jesus' death on the cross, our charge sheet was wiped clean. Satan can't accuse us anymore, so don't let him. It's done. It's gone. If you mess up again, and we all do, it's a short prayer of sorry away. If there's a voice in your head of condemnation, of guilt, of shame after you've messed up, it is not God's voice. Don't believe it. You are free from condemnation. If we just flip back to the end of verse 10, it says, he will reward those who loved him, who have loved him. And John 3.16 says, we're all very familiar, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The reward is not just going to heaven when you die. It's not just salvation. Eternal life is a rebirth of your spirit now. Receiving God's spirit as your helper now. Being transformed into the likeness of Christ now. Having God's desires placed in your heart now receiving spiritual gifts to use for the good of others and the glory of God now. I quoted Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death and it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ Jesus our Lord, the good shepherd. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. If you've read any of the Bible, then you know that this is just pure Jesus imagery, isn't it? 600 or so years before he even walked on the earth. And there's several other Old Testament verses too where a good shepherd was foretold. So Micah chapter 5 verse 4, for example says he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. The fulfillment of this promise of God, spoken out through Isaiah and Micah and others, can be seen in the many verses in the New Testament that speak of Jesus as a good shepherd. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. Not a good shepherd, 
the good shepherd, the one you've heard about. I am him you've been waiting for. But why a shepherd? Well, maybe because they were ordinary. They're overlooked by many, even rejected by some. Jesus was born in a stable and raised to be a carpenter. The children of celebrities nowadays arrive with much more fanfare, don't they? But to those who shepherds care for, they provide, protect, guide, nourish, refresh, lead, direct, provide safety from harm. The newborns and their mothers mentioned in the verse, these are the most vulnerable to attack. So we hold those close to his chest, nestling them in his care. He knows them personally and intimately. And those he cares for know his voice. He is sacrificial. Hold on, Israel. Be comforted. Don't lose hope. You are not forgotten. He's coming. So we could read Isaiah 40 in isolation, and it might just seem like a random collection of somewhat perplexing statements, um, but knowing the context opens us up to receiving real revelation in its words. But in seeing the mirroring of the books of the Bible, we can see how not only its words are prophetic, but its very structure and placement within the whole story itself is prophetic. Even Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. How amazing does that make this? If you think it's boring, you're not reading it right. If you study it, there is wonder and treasure to behold. We began thinking of a love story, and that is exactly what this is. God's story of his unending unfathomable, unshakable, unconditional, and undeniable love for us. Yes, God told this story through Israel, but it wasn't just for Israel. Verse 5 says, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. His love for all people, me and you. So if you have not yet accepted Jesus as your redeemer, the one who wipes your slate clean, gives you eternal life and loves you with that kind of love, is this the exact moment now? Your plot pivot? We can complicate this moment so much, can't we? But all you really need to do is just say yes to him in your heart. Yes. Now this word, Isaiah 40, it was originally for a people in exile. And we can't compare our current situation exactly with this, but we have felt isolated and anxious and very restricted in doing the things that we're used to, the things that make us us. And it's been tough. And so we may share some of the feelings of doubt, the questioning how long, and the wondering why, and the grief and the anger that those exiles had. But now, just as then, whatever you need, Jesus is the answer. Hold on. 
Be comforted despite your circumstances. Don't lose hope. You are not forgotten. He's not coming. He's here. But for those at the end of your rope today, those with nothing left in the tank, let's go to the end of Isaiah 40 and let me speak these words over you as a prayer this morning. Verses 28 to 31. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with these verses. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Hold on. Don't lose hope. He's here. We're going to pray now. But let's just take um, just a moment or two of just personal uh, reflection and solitude and quiet. Just allow God to um, just reveal the things that you need to let go of this morning. Things that you need to just get rid of from your heart so that God can fill them with everything that he wants to fill you with. God, we thank you for who you are. We just thank you for how amazing you are. God, we thank you um, that you didn't write us off. But God, that you love us just so much. That you do anything for us. Anything for us. And you are to be praised and to be worshipped. And Yeah, God, just help us know your love, really know it. God, we, we know things with our head, but God, just help us know it with our hearts, with our, the pit of our stomach. God, help us to know your love. God, help us just to, yeah, throw off all those untruths, all of those lies of the enemy that are holding us back. God, we want to live for you and for your glory because that's why we're here. We thank you that you've never ever left us on our own. God, where we are gathered, you are here amongst us. But God, even if we're on our own in a room with all of the doors closed, your spirit is with us. We need nothing else but you, Lord. Thank you.